Okay, great to be here today. I am not loving everything about July because, I mean, there's been a lot of fun things going on, but the net result of a lot of it is that I'm not here, which I like to be here. Uh, so I was gone last Sabbath, had a wonderful time in Virginia with the family. We had a really great time. Um, and then I'm here today, but then on, on Wednesday, I leave to go to Newfoundland which is an amazing place if you ever get a chance to go there. Um, and I'll be there for a camp meeting that they're having there uh, and uh, uh, kind of an intense time. I'm, I think I speak like nine times over the, over the course of about eight or nine days. But anyway, uh, should be fun. Uh, I've been there before, so it's fun going back and have another chance to be there. But the net result of that, at least impact-wise here, is I'll be gone the next two Sabbaths, uh, which... Uh, is okay because Tony Hunter is going to speak for us next Sabbath, and then Mark Johnson will speak on the 29th, and then I'll be back on, March, on, on August 5 to fix whatever it needs fixing after those two have gone. So we'll be fine. Just hang on. Whatever happens, I'll try to put it back together in August. But no, this will be wonderful. Uh, looking forward to... Uh, for. For that, and I'll be tuning in online and catching it when I can. But uh, by the way, in that context, what a wonderful job Vanessa did for us last Sabbath. She is so comfortable and smooth and easy up here. I, I watch video of her, and then I watch video of me, and it's like, yeah, no, you're not smooth like that. She just, she just flowed around. So it was wonderful. And she, her content was so good and so strong. So plan on hearing from her again whenever we get the chance to call her back up. So I appreciate her uh, being willing to do that. One other announcement that you need to know about, <clears throat> which is some very good news, and that is starting in August, Molly Duper will be joining us as our associate pastor. Now, some of you had the chance to meet Molly. Yes! Yes, thanks to Peter, who single-handedly drove it through personnel committee. No, it actually uh, came up at personnel committee, and he was there, but everybody was on board with this idea. This is going to be a really good thing for us, and uh, <clears throat> really looking forward to when she starts. She visited us a few weeks back, and many of you got to meet her, but she will be here officially starting in August, and, uh, and I, think, uh, I think you'll be thrilled to get to know her. So that's coming up, and we're looking forward to that. And that will be a blessing. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we need your spirit today. We need your help. We need to understand. You spoke, Jesus, some, some very, very meaning-loaded words. And we need to unpack that today. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start with a warning to you today. Today's going to be a little heavy because I need to honestly deal with what Jesus has said. And I can read what he said and just kind of give you some, well, here's what I think, or, or platitude, or this is kind of what we ought to think about it. But I don't think that's fair to what Jesus said, and I don't think it's fair to you. So today in particular is going to be a little heavy, and you're going to want to have one of those Bibles that's in front of you in your lap because I'm going to read you some fairly lengthy passages today. 
Because sometimes we can just grab a little piece and get what we need. But other times, to make the larger point of what we need to understand, we really do have to read a little more of the passage. So it's, so it's going to be a little different today. It's going to be a little heavy. And I'll try to move through this as, as expeditiously as possible. But one of, the, one of the, the realities of this is because of the nature of what I need to tell you, accuracy is very important. So I'm going to be a little more tied to what I've got written here today than I might normally be because I don't want to say it wrong. So, so a little different today. We may make some of the young people's eyes roll completely back into their heads, but we'll, we'll try to get through this. And uh, I think when we get to the end of it, it will have been worth the challenge. But this is part of what it takes you remember that passage in Ephesians where it says, then you will be no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but rather you go deep. And that's where we want to be. We want to be deep. So, so today's title is Old and New Part 2. If you remember two weeks ago, I started with Old and New, but as I got into this text, I realized no way I can do this in one week. So I've had to break this little story from the book of Luke down into two parts. We've been focused in the book of Luke, and we're taking a very slow walk through little pieces of stories in the book of Luke, trying to unpack them. We've been, I think this is our eighth week on this, and we've only been in chapters four and five. But today we're going on, and we're, we're going to start in Luke chapter five, beginning in verse 33. So I encourage you to take one of those Bibles, find Luke chapter five. Beginning in verse 33, and this is what we keyed on last time, two weeks ago. And they said to him, to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, this comment that's made to Jesus is not just uh, a, an informational query. There is an implied rebuke in this statement. The disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But you guys eat and drink. There's an implied rebuke there. And, and the rebuke is this. You guys just aren't very holy. And particularly, if you remember the context of this, the eating and drinking that Jesus and the disciples are doing is not just problematic because they're not fasting, but it's even more of a problem because of who Jesus and the disciples are eating and drinking with. Jesus has just called Matthew to join the group. And Matthew has invited his friends, tax collectors and sinners, to his house, and Jesus is eating with them. So it's not just that he's not being holy and fasting, he's hanging out with the wrong kind of people. But what they don't seem to understand is that life is about seasons and mandates. Indeed, even righteous acts of one season may in fact be the exact opposite in the next. You remember we made this comparison between John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke chapter 7, you don't have to turn to this, 
But Luke 7, verse 33, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So in the season of John, it was about uh, fasting. And in the season of Jesus, it was about feasting. But they were mad at both of them. So what season are you in? What is the right things for this season? Are you still trying to navigate today with yesterday's rules and tools? Are you still trying to use what got you through the last season in your new season? Now, all of this is its kind of fun to consider hypothetically, but it rapidly becomes very troubling in the extreme when we try to apply it to our life and to our belief. And the danger we get into, I like to call the polarity game. It's the all or nothing scenarios. Either everything matters and we must assiduously adhere to it, or nothing matters and it's a free-for-all. It's the polarity game. Such a saying as that, either everything matters or nothing matters, has, has the sound of wisdom. But think about it in your life. When has that ever been true? Have you ever had a scenario in your life where everything mattered? No. Have you ever had a scenario in life when nothing mattered? No. So you see, discernment has to come into play here. And part of the problem with playing the polarity game is that both sides can play the game from the same Bible. Does that ever frustrate you when people read the same book and come up with completely different conclusions? And to a degree, that's actually what we're going to do today. We're going we're to face the polarities, the yes and the no, the do and the don't do, the law and the grace, the behavior and the behaviorism, the ancient paths and the mysteries that are only now being revealed. And for this, we're going to need the Holy Spirit. So maybe we better pray again. So let's pray again. Father in heaven, we're going to turn to your word and we know that it's easy to misunderstand. So we ask for the same spirit that inspired the writers to be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, verse 36. He, Jesus, also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Okay, Jesus is saying this to the ones who are complaining that he and his disciples are not behaving properly. And in essence, Jesus is saying that what they are seeing and what Jesus and his disciples are doing is a new thing. And they probably won't be able to understand what it is that's happening until they are able to go back and understand 
what Hosea 6, 6 was saying. Why do I say that? Well, if you go to the story before, Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. And he quotes that verse to them that says, the Father desires mercy, not sacrifice. So he's saying these words to that group. And what he's saying is not only will new wine not work in the old skins, the ones who love the old skins love the old wine and are going to reject the new wine anyway. But here's the problem. It's clear enough from the story that we want to be able to handle the new wine. But how do we know what the new wine is? Well, let's see what we can figure out. We're going to start in the book of Jeremiah. So I'll give you a second to find Jeremiah, one of the, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament there, one of the larger books. Jeremiah chapter 6. Now, Jeremiah lived in an ugly time. And that is fleshed out in what we're going to read here. Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. That's not a good analysis of the times. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So what you've got here is the leaders are saying to the people, no, it's not a problem, no, it's fine, no, it's all right when it's not all right. Verse 15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time when I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Now, verses like this have, have become tough ones for me in this day when what was considered blush-worthy behavior in my youth is now routine and normalized. But, having said that, isn't that the experience of everyone over 50 for the last 200 years, right? Doesn't everybody, when you reach a certain point in your life, say, well, I not like that when I was a kid. So there's nothing new. Things that were blush-worthy when you were a child, as you get older, suddenly reality is different. And it's shocking to think when you're an older person that some of these young people who are living in this world that we find things so blush-worthy are themselves one day going to look back and consider behavior of kids. Yeah, oh, kids these days. You know, it wouldn't be a saying if everybody didn't experience it. So here's the question. Were we wrong about what was right back then? Are we wrong about what is right now? Were we wrong both then and now? Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls, but they said, we will not walk in it. Now, there is seemingly a clear implication of this passage suggesting that the former ways were the right ways. They're referred to as the ancient paths. 
So at first blush, you would read it that way, but, but am I oversimplifying what ancient path means? Verse 17, I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. Okay, so indeed, Jeremiah's days were days of terrible behavior and terrible disasters in Judah. The people had become so much like the Gentiles around them that there really was no difference at all. And the Lord had given them very clear instruction on this. And this will be our next text today, and this is an important one. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. That's all the way back amongst the first five books. Leviticus chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Now when he says Lord your God, understand he's using the name of God, which is Yahweh or something like that. I am Yahweh your God. He is identifying himself by name. This was relevant in the time because it was a time of polytheism. And they said, what God do you serve? Yahweh. He was named. So, so I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So he's drawing a distinction. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the Canaanites. The problem in the time of Jeremiah is they have become like the Egyptians and like the Canaanites. God said, don't be like them. Now verse 4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Now catch this phrase. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. If a person does them, he shall live by them. So that seems clear enough, right? Learn the rules keep the rules or else plan on the Gentiles coming and destroying you. Seems clear enough. And indeed, that's what happens in Jeremiah. They reject the rules, they reject the laws, and the Gentiles come and destroy them. But then after the return from Babylon, after the captivity, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, everything falls apart, they go away 70 years, they come back after the return from Babylon, the people were still struggling. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 is our next verse. Nehemiah chapter 9. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel who were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So now, you pause there for a second and remember our context in the book of Luke. Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and yours do not? 
Fasting was an important experience. And here we are in Nehemiah talking about this fasting time. Verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So what was step one of their revival? They separated themselves from all those terrible Gentiles. They're such troublemakers, aren't they? Verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Now, after this, between verses 3, and we're going to jump down to verse 26, there's a recounting of the history of Israel. And we're going to pick up at kind of the tail end of this. Verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, they rebelled against God, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. So they're, they're creating a context of the history of Israel. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is basically a description of the book of Judges. This story plays again and again and again and again, and it, it also happens in the time of the kings. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, now catch this line, if a person does them, he shall live by them, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Now this phrase that I just read you, that says, which, if a person does them, he shall live by them, this is a direct quote from Leviticus 18. You see, in the time of Nehemiah, they're reaching all the way back to the time of Leviticus, and they're quoting that phrase, your laws, which if a person lives by them, he shall live. If a person does them, he shall live by them. So, so he's directly quoting Leviticus 18 in a manner that affirms the statement. Now let's go on here, verse 30. Many years you, God, bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So, let's try to pull all this together, what we have so far. Based on what we have so far, the ancient paths seem to be associated with the law. And obedience to that law and the commandments, according to what we have so far, will result in life and prosperity. And by association, or perhaps maybe better to say, by contrast, could we not also conclude from the history of Israel that disobedience to the law will result in cursing 
Which brings us, interestingly, to the question that leads to the classic story in the book of John about the man born blind. You wonder where the disciples got these ideas in their head. Well, I'd say probably from reading the Old Testament. John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he, being Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see the rational process here? But then comes the disrupting and disturbing answer of Jesus. John 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's kind of a different take on things, isn't it? Is this new wine? Can your old wineskin hold it? Let's take a look at Paul's view on suffering. So we're going to go to Colossians this time. So now we're in the New Testament. Book of Colossians comes after all the Gospels and after Acts. One of the shorter ones, about four chapters. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now here's Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Which, okay, exactly what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm, I'm taking on part of your suffering? Where's he going with that? But that's not our point today, so we're just going to skip that. Verse 25. The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Okay, this is a troubling saying. Paul is suggesting here that contained within the Word of God, this Old Testament, or perhaps contained within that and other special revelation given outside of the written Word, is a mystery that has been hidden to all the prior generations of believers. Paul is claiming to have a deeper understanding of Scripture than they've ever had before. Priests didn't know this. Prophets didn't know. Kings didn't know. Noah didn't know this. Abraham didn't know this. Moses didn't know this. Isaiah didn't know this. Elijah didn't know this. Nehemiah didn't know this. John the Baptist didn't know this. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with Paul claiming understanding that even the greatest greats of the Old Testament never had? Verse 27, to them, his saints, 
God chose to make known. So this is new. This is a new thing. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So wait a minute. Now the Gentiles are included? Step one of the whole Nehemiah revival was to separate from the Gentiles. And now you're saying they're included? Are there no rules anymore? Well, not if this next part of what Paul says immediately afterward is true. He goes on, verse 28. Him we proclaim, Jesus, speaking of the Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So now think about those words. Warned and taught to be wise and mature. This is not the language of anything goes, is it? When you're living in the anything goes reality, you don't need to be warned. You don't need to be taught. You don't need to be wise. You don't need to be mature. So somehow he's trying to hang on to all of this. We see further discussion of this in Paul's letter to Timothy. So 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just go a little further on there. You'll find 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He says this to Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to be present. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed Rightly handling the word of truth. So let's think about this for a second. If there is a right way to handle the word of truth, I suppose that implies there's a wrong way, right? Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are... Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But now look at this verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Okay, so Paul is claiming here that, that God's firm foundation has two statements on its seal. First of all, God knows those who are his. And second, those who are God's depart from iniquity. And now at this point, we're going to steal a comment from two weeks ago. And this is what it was. One of the constant battles of the faith is the push and the pull between learning what one should do as a believer and doing it versus coming to mistake behavior for faith or lack of behavior for lack of faith. You see, it's one thing to be a believer and to come to understand what the Lord requires of you. It's another thing to mistake that for faith. 
or the lack of that for a lack of faith. The easy statement, the easy mistake to make is to claim that I can easily tell who God claims as his by their behavior, which is not entirely untrue, but it's also not true enough to be trusted. Remember, God knows those who are his, not I know those who are God's. So this is his, not mine. So what is the old wine and and what is the new wine? And how do we be a new wineskin and not an old wineskin? Well, okay, so here's the confession. I fear I will not answer this question today to everyone's satisfaction. But let's see if we can make progress. Back to Paul. This time Romans. So Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul here is writing to the very same kinds of Jews, or or about the very same kinds of Jews that Jesus is addressing in this original passage from the book of Luke. It's the ones who are saying, you guys aren't acting right. Now Paul is writing about these same guys. And he says, it's my heart's desire that they may be saved because I bear witness. They have zeal, but not knowledge. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right. Now, one way to interpret these words is that they mean that Christ is the end of the law as a means of righteousness. After Christ, the law is no longer a means of righteousness. But there's a problem with this approach. This idea is somewhat problematic because it suggests a dispensational model of how we are saved, suggesting that before Jesus you were saved by the law, but after Jesus you are saved by grace. This is a distortion. Don't get caught in this. Hebrews 10.4, you don't have to turn there, but it says this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. No amount of perfect law keeping was ever enough. So it's not like there was one way to be saved before Jesus and another way to be saved after Jesus. No, Jesus is the way. But back to Paul in Romans and get ready for a bit of a shocking reveal here. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, this is a quote from Leviticus 18. The one who does the commandments shall live by them. But now watch where he goes, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. 
But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, do you see what just happened here? Do you realize what just happened here? Paul quotes Leviticus 18 again, just like in Nehemiah it got quoted. But instead of quoting it as the definitive word on life and reality, he writes about it in the negative, seeming to call the concept of a righteousness that is based on law a negative thing, as opposed to the righteousness that is based on faith. So in the context of Jesus and fuller understanding that comes through Jesus, Paul seems to be, in Romans 10, refuting generations of understanding about what Leviticus 18 means. Do you see why the Jews wanted to kill him? Does it make more sense now? And the most fascinating thing about how he refutes the understanding of Leviticus 18 is that he quotes a different book attributed to Moses to refute it. Let me show you how it goes. I'm going to first give you the context from Romans 10. So Romans 10 verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Okay, that's how Paul has chosen to quote this. And seemingly he's using the Septuagint translation on it because you're going to see something a little different when I actually take you to the source. The original is Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'll give you a second to find that. That's the fifth book in the Bible all the way back. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is what Paul is quoting to place in contrast to Leviticus 18 that he quotes right before it. Here's the original, De Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This is what he quotes. And he attaches meaning to each one of those little sections in the context of Jesus. Now back to Romans 10. Paul follows it up with this verse that you likely know by heart. Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he continues with this, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is also a quote. I believe it's in Isaiah 26. You can also find this kind of thing in the Psalms a lot. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, he's quoting Old Testament. This is Joel 2. So he's taking Old Testament and bringing it in to refute the way Old Testament has been interpreted. So what is this new wine? Well, there is for sure a means of salvation element in it that must be understood. So we just have a few more verses. Hang in there. We're almost there. Galatians chapter 3. That one's close to Colossians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. We're talking about this new wine. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. He's quoting Old Testament again. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Again, he's quoting Old Testament. That's Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Leviticus 18. He's bringing that out again. But he's bringing it out again in the negative. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, Old Testament. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, Old Testament context, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this wine contains in it, this new wine, a salvation element that goes beyond the one who does it shall live by it into a new reality of the righteous shall live by faith. And it also drags in an unexpected element of inclusion. This time we're in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Very close to Galatians, just before it. No, just after it, sorry. Just after it. Ephesians 3 Verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul has this thing he does. He starts a thought, and it makes him think of something else. And then he takes off on a really long tangent. And that's what happens here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And you probably have a dash there in your Bible. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how, now catch these words, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Uncomfortable. He's saying, I gained an understanding here by direct revelation. Was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's talking about this mystery, this understanding that none of the Old Testament people had. So this is new. It's a mystery. And what is this mystery? Well, it's going to seem pretty lame to you, because you've known this all your life. But, but here it is, verse 6. This mystery is 
that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The great mystery is that you are included in grace. That's the great mystery. Now, it doesn't seem mysterious to us. We've, we've been told that. And in fact, we sometimes recreate the boundaries and call ourselves Israel of old and exclude everybody else. But no, the mystery is that this is a little more inclusive than maybe we reckoned. It was a mystery that in the end, the purpose was not to separate from the Gentiles or to rule over the Gentiles, but instead to share Jesus with the Gentiles that they too could be saved. This was the new wine. No wonder they wanted to kill him. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church... How is this mystery supposed to be made known? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you see, the church is the new wineskin. And the church is us. And through us, the new wine is to be shared with the world. What is in this new wine? Well, it's got some ancient paths in it, but it's also got mysteries of God hidden through the ages. And it's also got the manifold wisdom of God. But here's where it gets tricky again. Were all the mysteries revealed in the time of the apostles? Or is there truth Still to be found. You see, even new wineskins can become old wineskins over time. So it's clear enough, I think, that it isn't just anything goes. But it is also clear that sometimes, to quote one of my father's favorite old hymns, New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient good uncouth. Now here's the interesting point. The founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church understood this principle. And they applied it quite well in their early days. But ironically, as time went on, they started having trouble with it just like we do. They had a term for it. Do you know what that term was? Present truth. I don't know of any phrase that could go better with the concept of seasons than present truth. Because in each season, you need to live in the truth of that season as you know it. But you can't stay there. You have to go to the next step. And that's where it gets uncomfortable. That's where our wineskins get stretched. 
So the good news is the band can come back up now because we're almost done. Don't get confused here. It's not God that is changing over time. He is still the same God. We are the ones who are changing. And for the record, we are supposed to be changing. We're supposed to be living and learning and growing in grace and truth. We're supposed to be more kind, more patient, more loving, more and more like Jesus. Remember, life is about seasons and mandates. Indeed, even righteous acts from one season may in fact become the opposite in the next. So what do we do? How do we find our way forward? Well, maybe this encounter with Jesus from Luke chapter 10 can help us. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So some could accuse me of of today what we've done as being deconstructionist. I, I, I don't think that's right. Let's call it reconstructionist. So I don't want to leave us with nothing here. But what are we going to reconstruct on? How about this? Built on the cornerstone of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. With the first two building blocks being the great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If whatever we build on top of that can reduce faithfully back to the foundational reality of Jesus as our cornerstone and hope and salvation with love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself as the two fundamental laws of who we are. If this can be our wineskin, we can handle the new.